0: Good morning, everybody. We are going to continue our series from the Gospel of Luke. We left off last week at Luke chapter 4 with the temptations of Jesus. So we're going to pick up there. If you brought your Bibles with you, you can turn to Luke chapter 4. We will be there in just a moment. Rather than give you a lengthy review, let me just uh, point you to our website, livingstones.cc. And on there is a message tab, and you can listen to any of the podcasts or the messages. We've covered a lot of ground over the last couple of weeks as we're about to hit the third week here. And so we've been, about, we've been talking about Luke, who is the author of the Gospel of Luke, and he is a Gentile. In fact, he is the only Gentile author of Scripture that we have. He's the only one, and he authored two books in your New Testament. One is the Gospel of Luke, and the other is the Book of Acts. And he is writing to a Gentile audience to prove through his own investigation that Jesus of Nazareth is, in fact, the Messiah. Luke was most likely not an eyewitness of Jesus, but he even says for himself that I did my due diligence in my research and my investigation, and now he's trying to provide for us what would be considered an ancient documentary. So we're going to pick back up with Luke chapter 4, verse 14 in just a moment. Last week, we talked about we just blinked and Jesus turned 30 years old. We went from birth to one scene when he was 12 years old to, boom, he's 30 years old. He's getting baptized by his cousin, John the Baptist. And in the story, heaven opens up. The Holy Spirit takes on bodily form. It looks sort of like a dove. It descends on Jesus, and you can hear the voice of the Father from heaven saying, This is my Son, who I love, and with him I am very much pleased. And no sooner does Jesus get baptized but the Spirit himself leads Jesus into the desert or to the wilderness, and he doesn't eat for 40 days. And at the end of the 40 days when he's hungry and he's tired and he's vulnerable, Satan shows up and tempts him in the midst of his weakness based on three main grounds that we talked about last week, economic, political, and religious. So when we pick up here in Luke chapter 4, Jesus is about to launch his public ministry. And I find great and interesting parallels between Jesus and the current political campaign that we find ourselves here in the United States in 2016. And I'll explain as I continue, but I'd like to dive into some of those parallels. But before I do, I want to give you a little bit of background in regards to the context of Jesus' own life in the first century that I think will help us, at least when he launches his public ministry. Now, in our current political season, you hear a lot nowadays about economic systems. In fact, I've been amused predominantly on Facebook at how many people all of a sudden have doctorates in economics who speak with great intelligence for the general population on everything in regards to economics from capitalism, socialism, democratic socialism, communism, you name it. And then how quickly some are to want to bring God's approval on whatever economic system that we prefer as if God has given us in His Word the script for capitalism – or communism, or socialism, or any other ism that you might want to propose. Whereas the truth is, in the kingdom of God, under Jesus' reign, he doesn't sanction one economic system over another. For Jesus, all economic systems, even while some might be better than others, but they are all ultimately governed by the kingdoms of this world, and the kingdoms of this world are all fallen and corrupt, and thus it affects every economic system you might propose. But when God actually does establish a theocracy, and what we mean by theocracy is God himself rules, and by the way, there's only been one in the history of the world. It is the nation of Israel. It is not the United States of America. He does give to it an economic system, and one that would probably not allow God himself to get elected as the president of the United States because it has as the premise All the land really belongs to him, and he's going to redistribute wealth every 50 years. So if you enter into this conversation thinking the distribution of wealth is evil, you're going to struggle here with God's economic system for theocracy. It was called, and maybe you've heard this term, the year of jubilee. Have you ever heard of that phrase, jubilee, the year of jubilee? Or the year of the Lord's favor is the other reference point or phrase for it. The 50th year, every 50th year, it was a year of celebration and freedom, and it meant that all debts were forgiven. So if you had a lot of credit card debt, it would be forgiven. If you had a lot of school loans, if you could just wait till the 50th year, it would all be forgiven. If you owed a lot of money to so-and-so, or because of your present economic situation, you had to sell your property off to pay these bills, and you got behind, don't worry, when the year 50 hits you get it all back. It was known as the year of Jubilee or the year of the Lord's favor. I don't want to read the entire chapter, but you could find it in Leviticus chapter 25. Let me just read you a couple segments from that so you can get a flavor of this year of the Jubilee and we'll explain why this is important getting into the ministry of Jesus. Verse 10 of Leviticus 25 says this, consecrate, meaning subpart, "'The fiftieth year, and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all of its inhabitants. "'It shall be a jubilee for you. "'Each of you is to return to your family property and to your own clan. "'The fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. "'So do not sow, and do not reap what grows of itself, or harvest the unintended vines. "'For it is a jubilee, and to be holy for you, eat only what is taken directly from the fields. "'In this year of jubilee, everyone is to return to their own property.'" So here's what this means. Verse 14, if you sell land to any of your own people or buy land from them, do not take advantage of each other. You are to buy from your own people on the basis of the number of years since the Jubilee, and they're to sell to you on the basis of the number of years left for harvesting crops. When the years are many, you are to increase the price. When the years are few, you are to decrease the price because what is being sold really to you is the number of crops. So this is just, right? Right? Supply and demand, economics here. What it's saying is based on the 50th year, if the year of Jubilee is 48 years from now, well, you can jack up the price because you've got 48 years of crops. But if the year of Jubilee is just in two more years, then you can't charge that much because in two years it's going to revert back to its original owners. It's the year of Jubilee. Verse 16, when the years are many, you are to increase the price, and when the years are few, you are to decrease the price because what is really being sold to you is the number of crops. Verse 17, do not take advantage of each other, but fear your God, I am the Lord your God. Verse 23 of the same chapter, the land must not be sold permanently because the land is mine, and you reside in my land as foreigners and strangers. Throughout the land that you hold as a possession, you must provide for the redemption of the land. If one of your fellow Israelites becomes poor and sells some of their property, their nearest relative is to come and redeem what they've sold, so it gets to stay in the family. If, however, there is no one to redeem it for them, but later on they prosper and acquire sufficient means to redeem it themselves, they are determined the value for the years since they sold it and refund the balance to the one to whom they sold it. They can then go back to their own property. Look at verse 28, though. But if they do not acquire the means to repay, what was sold will remain in the possession of the buyer until when? The year of the Jubilee. It will be returned in the year of the Jubilee, and they can then go back to their property. See what happens? It's like even if you had to sell your property because you had debt and you never in your lifetime ever again afford what you what sold off, you get it back in the year 50. It's the year of Jubilee. It returns back to you and your family. Verse 35 of this chapter, if any of your fellow Israelites become poor and are unable to support themselves among you, help them as you would a foreigner and a stranger so that they can continue to live among you. Do not take interest or any profit from them, but fear your God so that you may continue to live among you. You hear what that's, you hear what that's saying? Like, if you loan them 25 bucks, what are you going to get back? 25 bucks. You're not going to charge 364% at the cash-and-go place down the street on Michigan Street, right? I mean, we don't, we're don't. we not going to do that. That's against God's heart. Verse 37, you must not lend them money at interest or sell them food at a profit. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to give you the land of Canaan and to be your God. If any of your fellow Israelites become poor and sell themselves to you... Do not make them work as slaves. You see what I'm saying? They can even sell themselves, their person, to you to pay off their debt. If they do, don't treat them as slaves. Verse 40, they're to be treated as hired workers or temporary residents among you, and you are to work for you until what? The year of Jubilee. Then they're free. They and their children and are to be released, and they can go back to their own clans and to the property of their ancestors. Because the Israelites are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt, they must not be sold as slaves. Do not rule over them ruthlessly, but fear your God. One more, two more verses here in Leviticus 25. Verse 54 says this, Even if someone is not redeemed in any of these ways, they and their children are to be released in the year of Jubilee. For the Israelites belong to me as servants. They are my servants whom I brought out of Egypt. I and the Lord your God. Now, you might be asking yourself, why is this such a big deal? Because it means that you won't lose your land forever. Even if you find yourself on hard times, or maybe famine hit, or there's some sort of issue of scarcity, some economic hardship, even if you have to sell your land out of it, it won't be permanent. It will return to you, or at least your descendants, in the year of the Jubilee, because land was a big deal to the Israelites. It goes all the way back to the initial promise that God made to Abraham, which was what? They would have their own what? Land. That was the promise. And so land became a precious commodity. Having land was so important so that even in your life, if you lost land, it was the great hope that on the 50th year, the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor, the land would come back to you. And so it was a promise from the very beginning from God, the land of Canaan. It was tied to his promises and his blessing and his presence. That's why if you lost your land, it was devastating. And you can imagine even as a nation, when they lost their land, it went to the very core of their identity. So in history, in 586 BC, the Babylonians came and they conquered Judea, they crushed Jerusalem, and they burned down the temple. You know what happened to the Jews? They lost their land and it went to the very core of their identity, you have to ask questions, are we even God's people anymore? Like, is he even our God anymore? Like, what about the land? And it's in that exile that they begin to ask these questions that in exile, God sends them the prophets. And one of the prophets is Isaiah. And if you actually read the prophet Isaiah, he'll say in Isaiah chapter 61, this passage, this is beginning verse 1, it says this, the spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. Because the Lord has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim freedom for the captives, and release from darkness for the prisoners. Listen, verse 2, to do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn and provide for those who grieve in Zion. To bestow on them a crown of beauty instead of ashes. The oil of joy instead of mourning, and a garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. They will be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the display of His splendor. See, Isaiah provides for us a glimpse of what's considered a messianic text, a time when God would bring about jubilee freedom and celebration. What was once ours that we lost through exile gets restored. We get back the land that we lost. And this can't be any more important and precious to the Israelite people, this idea and this promise that one day God is going to send a Messiah. And when he does, it will be a year of jubilee. Because for hundreds of years now, the Assyrians have had it, then the Babylonians have had it, then the Persians came and had our land, then the Greeks had our land, and now the Romans have our land. What we're longing for is the year of Jubilee, the year of the Lord's favor. Now hang on to this because this will be important in just a moment. The second thing I want you to know before we actually dive into Luke 4 is you need to know in the first century, given the economic and political and social climate of, that, of the first century, there were a lot of people who rose up and decided they were the Messiah, Like, Jesus of Nazareth is not the first person who came along and everyone looked to and thought, oh, maybe he's the Messiah. There are false messiahs that sprung up all the time. There was a very common thing, oh, maybe he's the Messiah, maybe he's the Messiah. Simon son of Kokhba is one, Simon son of Giora, Menahem ben Judah, Judas the Galilean, Hezekiah was the name of a supposed messiah. There's a mysterious Jewish sorcerer who just went by the phrase the Egyptian that many people thought he was the Messiah and he had a following. Simon of Perea and Thutis is another name of one who was a false Messiah. In fact, uh, Luke, who writes the gospel, he will also record in the book of Acts in chapter 5 the Sanhedrin, which was kind of the Jewish Supreme Court, so to speak. They didn't know what to do with the disciples. And some of them thought, well, we should just kill them, we should banish them, we should get rid of them. And there was a Pharisee on the Sanhedrin his name was Gamaliel, and he had some advice in regards to what we should do with this group of people who are claiming Jesus is the Messiah. He says this in verse 35. He addressed the Sanhedrin saying, men of Israel, consider carefully what you intend to do to these men. If you remember, some time ago, Thutis appeared, claiming to be somebody, and about 400 men even rallied to him, and he was killed, and all of his followers were dispersed, and it all came to nothing. And after him, Judas the Galilean, he appeared in the days of the census and led a band of people in revolt, and he too was killed, and all his followers were scattered. What he's doing is he's listing other false messiahs that sprung up. Now you've got this group of people who are saying Jesus is the Messiah, and Gamaliel is saying, listen, let's not do anything rash. Let's not do anything crazy. If you remember our history, this happens often, and if it's not from God, it will just come to nothing. We should just leave them alone. There was always a messianic zeal that existed in Palestine, especially in the first century, given the cultural, political, economic, and social conditions. And out of that zeal came the great hope that the Messiah would arrive. And there were several who took it upon themselves to declare they were the Messiah, the promised descendant of David, who would finally bring about freedom and independence for Israel and destruction to their enemies, the Romans. But here's the deal. You don't get elected Messiah. There's no ballot boxes, there's no line of succession, there's no handing over to the next line, In the, like, it's not like a traditional monarchy. What happened is you kind of had to get a following and you hoped that the following would spark a movement and you hoped that that movement would be powerful enough with of course the help of God, strong enough to actually crush the enemy and free Israel. Thus enter the scene of Jesus' public ministry. Now, what's interesting to me in modern politics is if you want to be the President of the United States, it almost always begins with a formal declaration of the candidate, one's intent to enter the race to become the next President of the United States. And every candidate does it, right? They put out a press release, they call in the news, they invite all of their supporters, all their friends, all their family, and then they get up and say, today, I am formally announcing that I, fill in the blank." I'm entering the race to become your next president of the United States. And they're gay, like, hey! right, everyone goes crazy. And where do they usually, not always, but in the main, where do they usually go to announce their candidacy? Anyone know? Usually their home state. If not, their hometown. They always play towards the home field advantage. Because if you're running for office, surely you can at least get your home state to vote for you, except for Marco Rubio, sorry, but (laughs) surely your hometown will vote for you. So picture, if you would, in your mind for a moment, Jesus' campaign management team running the elect Jesus as Messiah campaign, they've gathered with Jesus to ask, so where are we going to launch this baby? Like, where are you going to kick off the big news that you're running to be the Messiah of Israel? Like, probably Jerusalem, right? Because you're the Messiah. Where else would you announce? But we should go to Jerusalem and make such an announcement. And Jesus says, no, nope, we're not, we're not going to go to Jerusalem. Huh? You're not going to go to Jerusalem? All right. Um, Bethel. We'll probably go to Bethel because a lot of stories in the Old Testament, God showed up. Like, that'd be a great location for you to announce that you're the Messiah. And Jesus says, nope, no, we're not, we're not going to Bethel. Well, what about Hebron? No, Bethlehem. At least go to Bethlehem. That's at least the city of David. No, we're not going there either. Well, where are you going to announce this? I'm going to Nazareth. Nazareth? Are you serious? Small, podunk Nazareth? That's where you want to, like, the news, they're not coming out. Nazareth doesn't even have any Wi-Fi. There's no way that people are coming out to Nazareth. Like, there's not even a subway in Nazareth. you got to go to the next city over to get a subway. Come on, Jesus. Are you sure? And so that's where he wants it. It's going to be at Nazareth. So they set it all up. Jesus is going to announce his campaign for Messiah as Nazareth, and it picks up in verse 14. That's what it says. Luke 4, 14. Jesus returned to Galilee in the power of the Spirit, and news about him spread through the whole countryside. He was teaching in their synagogues, and everyone praised him. So you see what happens? Jesus goes back to his home area, gets a few preaching gigs, and when he's done, everyone's like, that's Jesus. He could preach. Have you heard Jesus? Like, He's a good preacher, and so people are talking about Jesus, and like, when he gets up and he, and he teaches the people and he preaches, it's, a, he's, it's really quite amazing. Like, he's, he's doing a great job. So verse 16, he went to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, so baby Jesus came home, right? Little G, oh, Jesus, right? That's what, he came home to his, to his home church. I tried that. I, I tried that. It's okay. That's so where he brought up, and it was on the Sabbath day. He went into the synagogue, as was his custom, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, unrolling it, he found the place where it is written this, verse 18, the spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind to set the oppressed free to do what? To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Now you remember hearing this, right? This is Isaiah chapter 61. It was the prophecy of the year of the Lord's favor about Jubilee. It was a familiar messianic text that everyone looked forward to. One day, these Romans will be defeated, and we'll get our land back. And little Jesus, I mean, everyone watched Jesus grow up, goes to his hometown. And you have to imagine, listen, everyone had to be proud, right? I mean, like, oh, look at Jesus. Like, he's made something of himself. He's doing so well. Look at, him, look at him up there, reading from the scroll of Isaiah, just so proud. Now, one interesting thing to note, Jesus cuts off the end of the verse. Like, if you actually read Isaiah 61, after it says, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor, you know what it says next? And the day of vengeance of our God. But one of Jesus' political campaign managers told him, just keep it positive. And so, Jesus going to keep it positive for now. Let's just focus on the Jubilee and not God's vengeance for the moment. So, here's what happens next, verse 20. Then he rolled up the scroll, gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. And it says that everyone was watching Jesus in the synagogue, just fastened on what he would say next. And this is what he says, verse 21. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. Today, this scripture is fulfilled is fulfilled in your hearing. Now, could you imagine everyone, as Jesus was reading, was probably, oh, that's so wonderful. And then they went, wait a minute, what did he just say? Like, what? Did, Did he just say that this has been fulfilled today in our hearing? Is he trying to claim? And then they start asking questions. Isn't this Joseph's son? Like, We know this kid. We watched him grow up. We know his brothers and sisters. We know his parents. And and look at verse, verse 22 says, all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his lips. And then there's a turn here. Isn't this Joseph's son, they asked? Now, if you're Jesus's campaign manager, you're kind of hoping that your candidate plays nice, dodges maybe any difficult questions, don't say anything rash. You don't want to offend anyone. Don't get up and... Talk snarkily about Nazareth values as if it's a bad thing. Just make, come on, people. That was a good. That was good. Come on, that was good. Just make your speech, play nice, garner support, and let's move on to the next campaign stop. Except, Jesus isn't seeking votes, and he isn't politicking, and he isn't interested in any vote. And this really has to bite if you're hired to be his campaign manager or spokesman because your job is about to get a whole lot harder here in just a moment. And so I don't know what really happens because Luke doesn't record for us a seamless transition to what takes place. But out of nowhere, Jesus starts to take on the role of a prophet and he lets his home church kind of have it. Like he gives a rebuke to his home church and his tone of voice changes and tensions in the synagogue rises. Here's what it says in verse 23. Jesus said to them, Surely you'll quote this proverb to me, Physician, heal yourself. And you'll also say to me, Do here in your hometown what we heard that you did in Capernaum. But truly I tell you, No prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel in Elijah's time when the sky was shut, up, shut off for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land, yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And the church goes, Oh! And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha, the prophet, yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. And they went, no, he didn't. Like, that's what's happening in the background. Now, in case you missed what's happening, let me point it out here. He re- just two stories from the Old Testament, he reminds his own church, one from the days of Elijah, one from the days of Elisha, that, hey, when God showed up, it wasn't to the Jews. He showed up to the non-Jews. What Jesus does here is he's in front of his home church and he takes on their Jewish supremacy and their racist tendencies to look down on and put down non-Jews. Basically, Jesus goes home and through these two stories, he says to his home church, you people are a bunch of bigots and racists. Your Jewish supremacy at the cost of non-Jewish inferiority does not line up with God's actions. And if you're a campaign spokesman right now, you're freaking out at this moment thinking, Jesus, get off the stage, quit talking. But Jesus' first message out of his public ministry, and announcement is to put his finger on racism and to start hashtag Gentile Lives Matter. No other gospel writer includes this story. Only Luke. And why? What is Luke? He's a Gentile. And who's he writing to? Gentiles. And from the opening bell, he shows Jesus embracing the universality of the kingdom of God to even non-Jews. Now, in case you think I've messed this whole story up, and this is really just Jesus sharing two old testament stories with a flannel graph and everyone's happy, we're going to read here in verse 28 and see what happens here. Because what normally happens to a person when they put their finger on supremacy and racism? Like what typically happens to them? Yeah, it doesn't go well. Here, Verse 28 says this. All the people in the synagogue were furious when they heard this. Like, not offended. Like, I'm a little offended by that. Like, I might make a comment on Facebook or write it on my connection card. Like, they're furious. They got up, verse 29, drove him like Jesus who grew up among them drove him out of the town and took him to the brow of the hill on which the town was built to do what? To throw him off of a cliff. Like, it is not going well for Jesus at his home church. Like, they want to kill him. But fortunately, Jesus was a Heisman Trophy winner, and he's got some moves. And so he jukes the crowd, and he walks right through the crowd, and he goes on his way. Now, how would you like to be in that campaign meeting afterwards, right? You gather your team together. All right, Jesus clearly that did not go quite the way that we had hoped. Your home church just tried to kill you by throwing you off of a cliff. We kind of need to regroup and build some momentum if we're going to really get this Messiah movement off the ground and gaining some traction. So it would really help if uh, you could add some people to the team that will maybe give us a little bit of credibility, uh, some experience. If you can get some like endorsements from people who are in the know, that would be helpful to us. Maybe some individual's connection, you're going to need some money and influence, that would help. Maybe a religious scholar, that would be great, Jesus, could you find a religious scholar to add to the team? A Levite would even do, a priest is even better if you could find one of them, maybe somebody from the nobility. If you could get a couple guys from the Sanhedrin just to give a little blurb about you as Messiah, I think we could print that and it will help us out in our campaign, but we need to get some momentum back because what just happened in your home church was a disaster. And Jesus says, all right, I'll, I'll look for some people to add to my team. We'll, we'll see if I can do this. So I, I'm going to skip the rest of chapter 4, and I'm going to come back to it because I got a theme I want to continue here. But if you go to chapter 5, verse 1, it's the story of Jesus picking people to be on his team <laughs> to give it some momentum. It says this to verse 1, one day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Gennesaret, the people were crowding around him and listening to the word of God. And he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, which, by the way, do you know know who Simon is, his other name in the Bible? Yeah, it's Peter. So Simon is Peter here. And he asked him to put out a little from the shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. And when I read this, just as a preacher, I'm like, I love this. Like, why don't we do this anymore? We should gather at the lake. I could sit in a boat off the water and just preach from there, and it would be a great morning. Anyhow, when he when finished, so he said, I talked to people from the boat. Verse four, when he had finished speaking, he said to Simon, Put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. And Simon's about to answer here, but you have to appreciate for a moment, you know, Simon, this is what he does for a living. Like, have you ever, like, what you do for a living, you have somebody who does not do what you do for a living show up and try to tell you how to do your job? You ever, has that ever happened to you? And you're like, Who do you think you are? Like, I, this is what I do. Like, for Simon, this is what he does. He's a fisherman. His entire life has been about fishing, and you got this, whatever he is, carpenter rabbi guy showing up telling me how it is I should fish. But Simon goes ahead and says, listen, master, listen, we worked hard all night, haven't caught anything, but because you say so, we're going to go ahead and oblige you. We'll go out and we'll let the nets down. Verse 6, when they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners and other boats to come and help them, and they came and filled both boats so full that they both, because of fish, began to sink. They know this is not normal. Like, Peter knows the normal habits and the patterns of behavior in the water. Like, he knows it's not, like, this is crazy. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. Now, he's not exaggerating. That's really what he is. He is a sinful man. And he recognizes somebody's in the boat who has command of fish. For he and all of his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, who were also called the sons of thunder, probably because they were hotheads, who were Peter's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you're going to fish for people. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. Now, there's a pecking order and a hierarchy, if you will, in society in the first century. century. And close to the bottom of the ladder are fishermen. They were a working class, blue-collar, unrefined. They were known to be vulgar and rough, uneducated, kind of crass. If you were throwing a fancy dinner party, not once would you ever think, we should invite some fishermen. Like, that would never come to your mind. They're not the movers and shakers. They're not in the upper echelons of society. They were largely impoverished truly living day by day on whatever they could catch, consume, and sell. And so they're not bringing any money into this campaign. What's, they're not on the board of goldfish sacks that can pay Jesus $225,000 for a 20-minute speech. It's not possible. Come on, this is clever. Is this not clever? <laughs> Some good stuff here. You couldn't ask for a worse pick if you were the campaign manager. You would step up, about Jesus, no, seriously, no, 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 no. You cannot invite Simon, James, and John, the sons of thunder who were hotheads. This is a, a brawl just waiting to happen at one of the rallies. This is such a bad idea. <laughs> Could <Can> you imagine? <laughs> and not only that, but when all the other rabbis with their disciples look at yours, you're going to be the butt of so many jokes. Jesus, come on, seriously. And you know what Jesus does next? He doubles down. Like It's like, huh, you don't like this team? Watch what he does next. Verse 27. After this, Jesus went out and saw a tax collector. (laughs) You think people didn't care much for fishermen. (laughs) By the name of Levi. You want to know what Levi's other name was in in the scriptures? Matthew. Levi is Matthew. He was sitting in his tax booth, and Jesus says to him, follow me. And Levi got up and left everything and followed him. Then Levi, probably overwhelmed with just who invites him to anything, like Jesus, a rabbi, just invited him to follow after him like a disciple, and he's probably so overwhelmed by just grace and compassion and mercy, he didn't know what to do. I'm just going to throw a party, like we're throwing a banquet for Jesus. And he doesn't have any real friends, so the only friends he has are fellow tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes and people that no one else hangs out with. So he invites them all over to his house, and it says that Jesus is in the house eating with tax collectors and sinners. Verse 30. But the Pharisees and the teachers of law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples. So they gather around Jesus' disciples, hey, why do you guys eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? And Jesus overhears this and he answers back, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I'm not coming to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And they said to him because they, rep- they remembered, well, you're cousin, John the Baptist, he had disciples and they were praying and fasting all the time and and now I think about it, when I think about the disciples of the Pharisees, they do the exact same thing but what does Jesus' disciples do? They're eating and drinking. <laughs> woo <Woo-hoo! laughs> And Jesus responds back, Can you make the friends of the bridegroom fast while he's with them? What he's saying is, listen, if the groom is there and the wedding's going down, this is not a time for fasting. This is a time for partying. Now, listen, the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and in those days, they'll fast. But not now. Now he's here. And then he tells them a story. It's a parable. He uses two things as an illustration. He says, Listen, no one tears a piece out of a new garment to patch it on an old one, right? You put it in the washing machine. What's going to happen to the new the new cloth? It's going to shrink. And when it shrinks, what's going to happen? It'll tear off the old garment. You don't do that. Nobody, if you know, if you're, nobody does that. In the same way, verse thirty-seven, no one pours new wine into old wine skins, right? Why? Because you got new wine, man. It's got to ferment. That's a dynamic thing that's going to take place. It's expanding. It's moving. And, and if you got old wine skins that doesn't have any more elasticity, that new wine when that goes to ferment, it's just going to burst, and you're going to waste all of it. Verse eight no new wine must be poured into new wine skins and then he just notes kind of what normally happens and this is true even today what he notes is no one after drinking the old wine wants the new they always say the old is better now back to the story here if you think fishermen were looked down upon let me tell you about tax collectors the jews looked to the romans as their great enemy they were the occupiers the one who oppressed them and kept them from their freedom and independence. And you know who tax collectors were? They were considered Jewish traitors who worked for the enemy for Rome. They would extort money from Jews, fellow Jews, and hand it over to the Roman oppressors. Tax collectors were the scum of the earth to the Jews. No parent wanted their kid to grow up and to say to anybody, oh, he ended up being a tax collector. It would be a thing of shame or embarrassment. And here Jesus says he calls a tax collector to his team. And I can't help but imagine... Peter and James and John, as soon as Levi shows up, I bet even they were like, "Uh -uh, uh-uh, nuh-uh, Jesus. Like, I know we're just fishermen, but we're at least not a tax collector, and they probably had an issue. But Levi is so moved by Jesus' invitation to follow him, he throws a party for Jesus. And he he only invites the friends he has, just sinners and fellow tax collectors. And listen, Jesus is sharing table fellowship with tax collectors and sinners. This is our Lord. And I need you to hear this. Jesus is embracing people that everyone else rejected, especially the religious ones. Don't talk to me about your religious freedoms and what you think you can exclude because of it. At least don't pin that on Jesus. Jesus is eating with tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. He has compassion and mercy to people who were truly loathed and on the outside of any scale of righteousness. I'm not to be mistreated. They truly were on the outside of any scale of righteousness. His guiding principle is keep not keep out anyone who's unholy. His guiding principle is, well, I've not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. And the critics come out, and they note John the Baptist's disciples didn't do this, Pharisees' disciples didn't do this, but Jesus says they keep eating and drinking. And Jesus says, the bridegroom is here. It's appropriate to party now. And he tells this parable to say, God is doing a new thing. And because I am the Messiah, I'm doing a new thing. And you can't get to the end of this chapter but realize this isn't the Messiah anyone was expecting. This is a campaign manager's nightmare. But Jesus isn't running for Messiah. He's not politicking. He isn't hoping to garner votes. He's just trying to be faithful to the heart of his father. And he even notes, when everyone is used to the old, they're going to look at the new and say, we want the old. We like that much better. That's what we're familiar with. But the good news for every person in this room is that the Messiah is doing a new thing. And because of that, opens a door for us. Because the greatest temptation we suffer is the temptation to believe that God doesn't want us. And if we were really honest at times, that God doesn't even like us. I think we might admit God loves us because he has to. He's God in some sort of cosmic, God loves everybody type of thing. But he probably doesn't really like me. If we were just to think about me, my guess is he's probably a little disappointed. He's probably a little upset. He probably has that moment where, You could have been so much more, and I'm kind of like a big disappointment. I'm not sure he does like me. He might not smite me because he's God, but I don't think he'd probably pick me to be on his team. And yet Jesus, who is God, looks at every individual who would think that, Peter, James, and John, and Levi, and say, no, I'm picking you. I'm choosing you. And for Luke, what he wants to say is, this is exhibit D, you are exhibit D, that this man, Jesus from Nazareth, is the Messiah, and he picks you, and he picks you, and he picks you, every person who might have that fleeting thought of there's no way. Jesus would ever pick me. And that thing that immediately comes to your mind as to why you're such a great disappointment, what I want you to know is, oh no, He He knows. And He still chooses you. And this morning I would encourage you to accept, like Peter did, and James and John and Levi, Jesus' invitation to follow him. To maybe once and for all finally give up all those excuses that come up into your mind as to why you can't really follow Jesus because see, I still got this in my life and I still haven't worked this out yet and I still have this sin and I've still got this relationship and 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 I just want you to know, I know, and Jesus still says, no, I'm picking you and I want you to come follow me and it's time to receive new life. This is the Messiah and this is what Luke tells us. You are the result of the work and ministry of this Unexpected Messiah. Amen? Let's stand together. And let's pray. Father, what we are able to say out loud with great confidence is we've done nothing to earn a spot on your team. There's nothing that we even bring to your team that would in any way enhance your fame or your notoriety or even your glory. Like if you were just to hand pick people, we're quite confident you have every reason and excuse to skip right over us and to choose somebody far more spiritual that has their life together. And what's amazing to us is that out of your compassion and your mercy and just the fact that you're crazy in love with us, that you like us enough to say, no, I'm picking you. So, God, would you give us the courage to receive that invitation and to be faithful disciples of your son, Jesus? That we've said yes to following after him. Will you now, by the power of your spirit, begin to work in our life in such a way where we're not always that mess, and we're not always that screwed up, and we're not always that sinful, but just incrementally, just as we continue to progress in the life of your son Jesus, we look more and more like him. But we stand together to say today, we thank you for your grace and your mercy and your invitation. We receive it in Jesus' name. Amen.